Currently, India's Supreme Court has been holding hearings for historic cases regarding the legalization of same-sex marriage and other rights for LGBTQ plus citizens. These petitions are actively opposed by India's ruling government and religious authorities. The approval of these petitions could set a new precedent for LGBTQ plus rights in Southeast Asia, which brings us to the questions of how did we get here and what might happen next. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Trisha Ballian. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today is our analyst, Drew Starbuck. Hey, Drew. Hey, Trisha. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for being here. And focusing on the international aspect today is Kasha Kastraba. Hey, Kasha. Hi, Trish. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So just to begin, I want to get some background information regarding the history behind these cases and the case itself that we're looking at. So I'm going to turn to you first, Drew, and I was wondering if you could shed some light on previous court cases in India, whether or not they have anything to do with what we're looking at currently, and just kind of general domestic background. Of course, Trisha. So I want to first start off with the fact that in the last decade, there has been several court cases approved by the Indian Supreme Court that have given more rights to LGBTQ people in general, and also protecting LGBTQ relationships, or what the India Supreme Court has defined as non-traditional families. In 2014, a court ruling recognized transgender people as a third gender, and in 2019, the top court decriminalized sex between men. Now, this came at a time as another Asian nation, Singapore, also decriminalized sex between men, but the policies between the two are very different. Policymakers in Singapore talked about and made clear that this was not a step forward towards equal right for LGBTQ people and that the government in Singapore was planning to use a constitutional amendment to raise obstacles to legalizing same-sex marriage, which puts many social benefits out of reach for gay and lesbian families. And currently, India, of course, is considering same-sex marriage hearings within their Supreme Court. The Supreme Court also ruled last summer in India that same-sex couples and other non-traditional families are entitled to social benefits. So are there any other steps that India has taken in the past towards protecting the queer community? So, of course, almost five years since the Supreme Court struck down a colonial era ban on gay sex. Even so, a lot of the LGBTQ community doesn't have equal rights when it comes to things like inheritance, divorce, property ownership, adoption. A lot of these things like that I kind of outlined before, Trisha, are the steps that are taken, but there is clear there's a lot of progress that remains to go. What's interesting is that I think I'll mention this informational fact later when we talk about the population of India, but India's government put its LGBTQ population at 2.5 million people in 2012. And more recent global estimates say it could be at least 10% of the country, or more than 135 million people. And India is set to become this year the most populous country in the world in passing China. So this is a court case that affects a huge amount of people, more than you would expect. Absolutely. And I want to turn to you, Kasha, to talk about some of the historical viewpoints and influences regarding LGBTQ plus citizens, specifically in India. So petitioners argue that the institution of marriage has changed over time and legalizing same-sex marriage is the next step forward. We see this with a lot of stuff that Drew just mentioned. Legal rights, as Drew also mentioned, that come with marriage in India are filing joint taxes, adoption, holding joint bank accounts and inheritance rights. A lot of that's important, especially like adoption, building families when gay couples can't biologically have children. A lot of that stuff is obviously very important also during covid there was a lot of stuff about uh, visitation rights in hospitals so in recent years and with the population growing there has been a lot of historical precedent that has been pushing towards this so that's why it's such a landmark case in in addition to the population growth 
So you mentioned the historical precedents. Could you give us some more detail on some of the historical influences in India? So four and a half years ago, the top court struck down a law criminalizing homosexuality, which is something that I believe Drew touched on a bit earlier. And it marked a significant shift in LGBTQ rights in India, increasing activism for the community. And in 2018, the legislation was amended to decriminalize gay sex in India. A lot of these laws are repealing, uh, Trisha, colonial era legislation by the British once they ruled India and things like that. So it's not just that the Indian government or the Indian Supreme Court is ruling out new legislation. The Indian Supreme Court has basically taken steps to basically take out legislation or laws that have been anti-LGBTQ, the ban on uh, gay sex, decriminalizing that, as well as other different rights that we talked about earlier. It's also mentioned that Kasha mentioned the important step of decriminalizing same-sex or gay sex in general, that this has had an impact on LGBTQ rights. Indian attitudes towards LGBTQ people have grown much more tolerant in recent years. Uh, the Pew Research Center found that 37% of Indian people said homosexuality should be accepted by society in 2019, when this was a jump from just 15% of people in 2014. I think a lot of that has to do with the current court cases and just a shift in that attitude. So Yadav, who is a prime minister, says that conversations around LGBTQ rights have accelerated in the last decade or so, but the country still has a lot of distance to go as seen. And so kind of the importance of these hearings can't be understated because attitudes have changed on the ground, but there's still cases of attacks on same-sex couples and their general resistance to the idea of recognizing them in this marriage. Thus why the court has stepped in, so to speak, assembled a panel to tackle this issue. Absolutely. And so could you give us a little more information, Drew, on the case at hand, like who's petitioning the government, what some of their the plaintiffs are proposing, things like that? Yes. So four couples, Trisha, are petitioning India's Supreme Court to legalize gay marriage. Yadav, one of them, is talking about how it's the simple things that they're asking for, like being able to get a joint bank account or health insurance or owning a house together, which cannot currently be done in India as a same-sex couple because their union is not recognized in Indian law. For example, current Indian law only recognizes one member of a same-sex couple as the parent because they gave birth to the child or they adopted them as a single parent. A plaintiff, Sadita Anand and Susan Diaz, told NPR last month that they're taking up this fight because they do everything that heterosexual couples do, but without legal security. And that includes raising their children, their toddler. Uh, Nand is quoted as saying, there's no reason that our child should be denied the right to have parents or the right to two parents as well. And of course, it's worth mentioning that could be used as evidence in this case. The Indian Psychiatric Society, the country's largest organization of mental health professionals, issued a statement last week reiterating that homosexuality is not a disease, of course, and that denying people their civil rights may lead to mental health issues. And that declaration should be significant because the Supreme Court's judgment decriminalized gay sex referred to a statement of support from the Indian Psychiatric Society from that same organization. So that may be pivotal we're looking at what the Indian Supreme Court, this panel that the Chief Justice has assembled, may decide in this case. So with this case, obviously, like you both have been saying, we're seeing a lot of shifting views, more acceptance of homosexuality within India. So, Kasha, I want to turn to you and ask about what do the LGBTQ rights look like in Asia as a region, you know, outside of India? Yeah, so for the continent, this is a big step because not many countries have moved towards legalization of gay sex or gay marriage or any LGBTQ rights. There's only a few countries that have done so. On May 24th, 2019, legislation legalizing same-sex marriage became effective in Taiwan, making it the first nation in Asia to legalize it. 
And then in January, this past January, Taiwan began recognizing transitional same-sex marriages. That means a couple where one spouse is from the nation and one is from a nation that doesn't recognize gay marriage, their marriage will be legalized in Taiwan even though both spouses aren't nationals of the nation. While same-sex marriage still isn't legal in Thailand, last year a series of four laws regarding gay couples were drafted to give same-sex couples similar rights as straight couples. So it wasn't legalized, but they did lean back and kind of give them more rights, but it's still unconstitutional. Their constitution still recognizes only heterosexual couples, but people believe that it's going to be amended within the next couple of years just based on um, some election patterns recently. And Thailand is often regarded internationally as a highly accepting nation for LGBTQ community, and it's even a highly desired destination for LGBTQ travelers across the globe. Another nation that is worth looking at right now is Japan. Recently, Tokyo held its first Pride Parade in four years. This gave a lot of hope to LGBTQ people within the nation. Despite the Prime Minister Kishida and his conservative ruling party, and it's an estimated that 10k people march in this parade. So, is there a tension there between Tokyo and Japan's attitudes towards the LGBTQ community and the government's opinions, similar to what we've seen in India? Yes, like I mentioned just a minute ago, Kishida's ruling party is very conservative. He actually had his special advisor Masako Mori go to the parade that I just mentioned and she gave opening remarks but did not mention legalization of same-sex marriage only urging a greater understanding of the community so while they are recognizing it you can tell that they're not uh, very apt or very keen on legalizing it the Japan is hosting the G7 next month, which also makes this very notable because Japan is the only nation in the G7 that does not recognize same-sex marriage. So that is another reason why this is very important to look at. Polls are consistently showing that 70% of Japanese population supports same-sex marriage. Gotcha. So would you say there's a tension between the countries that don't have protection for LGBTQ rights in place and those that do, mentioning the G7 meeting in Japan? I wouldn't say it's the countries in particular. I'd say it's more the nationals of mm -hmm. those countries. Um, a lot of Japanese citizens at these rallies or following these rallies have taken to social media and they're expressing their discomfort with the conservative ruling party and how some people might say behind they are to the other nations who are considered these global powers like the United States. And so I wouldn't say it's the states in particular that are clashing, but it's the people wanting change because they see how much more they could have. And I think part of that relationship, Trisha, just to add on to Kasha's point, it's not just that there's tension between these two nations, but one of the things mentioned that if India approves the same-sex marriage and the Supreme Court does so is that this effort can be seen as an economic boon. India would be the second Asian nation after Taiwan that officially legalizes same-sex marriage, which allows them to compete with other nations such as Japan or China for talent and business tourism and being more LGBTQ friendly can only help with that to a certain extent. Thank you for that. That makes a lot of sense in terms of the benefits to having the protection in place for LGBTQ plus citizens. 
So now that we've gotten some idea of what the region looks like on a whole, I want to turn back to you, Drew, and ask more about the struggles of the current case. And so could you explain to our listeners out there what has been the procedure with the current case so far? Okay. So I want to come back to the ruling last summer that I spoke about earlier, Trisha, talking about how the Supreme Court affirmed that same-sex couples and other non-traditional families are entitled to social benefits. And the court ruled that the law must not be relied upon to disadvantage families, which are different from traditional ones. The top court's two-judge panel at that point say, and familiar relationships, they stated, may take the form of domestic, unmarried partnerships, or career relationships. And what is extremely interesting about the background of this case was that it did not directly involve LGBTQ rights. Instead, it was centered on maternity leave benefits for a woman who had adopted her husband's children from a prior marriage, who then conceived a child of her own. While the case didn't directly concern an LGBTQ family, the ruling written by the Chief Justice Chandra Duchud defined a household spirally to include single parents, step-parents, and adoptive family. He said such atypical manifestations of the family unit are equally deserving, not only protection under law, but also the benefits available under social welfare legislation. And this justice is now the Chief Justice of the Indian, and he's the one who has assembled a five-court panel. And that the Indian Supreme Court's hearing into a number of deficiencies seeking to legalize same-sex marriage is being live-streamed in the public interest. And the case has attracted the nation, attention of the nation with both sides very forcefully expressing their views. So what are some other like precedents that the judges are looking towards? I know you mentioned some cases in the past that have referred to, quote-unquote, non-traditional families. What else are they basing these cases off of? So I think we can specifically refer back to legislation. When we talk about colonial-era legislation, Uh, that are being steadily repealed with this. We can also talk about legislation that has been used to break up the former caste system within India as well. And disregarding the government's objectives, this five-member panel that the Chief Justice has set up, the judges said they would look at the Special Marriage Act of 1954, which allows marriages between people of different castes and religion, which could be tweaked to include LGBTQ people. The court has told people to finish arguments by last week. However, that is still ongoing at the moment. But it's important that the chief justice called this a matter of seminal importance and has set up a specific five-judge constitutional bench, which deals with important questions of law, to rule on it in general. So there is hope for those petitioners that the chief justice has been friendly and considers this a matter of importance that he's helped assemble this panel. They are coming up against a large majority of public opinion of India, even though it's improving for them. It is not the way it needs to be yet, and also the opposition of government and religious authorities. So on the topic of the opposition of the government and religious authorities, what are their reasonings for opposing these cases? So numerous government officials have come out against the petition and argue that this issue is really not one for the courts to decide, but should instead be decided by the legislature. Solicitor General Tushan Mehta, who's representing the government, questioned the court's right to hear them at it all. And he said it was not a matter to be determined by the five individuals of the panel that the Chief Justice set up. Only the Parliament could discuss the social and legal issue of marriage. Vogue magazine also had a record, a same statement from the Solicitor General, arguing that same-sex marriages cannot be legalized because that would mean bringing all prohibited marriages, including incest, under the arm ambit of legality, which I think is a little bit very much a stretch in a lot of ways and to compare incest with queer marriages was far-fetched the chief justice noted in so many rewards as a response as he should mm-hmm. but there's also like very firm opinions of the opposing side prime minister narendra modi who's noted to be um, very pro-hindu nationalist has already posed these appeals some from gay couples on the grounds that such marriages are not comparable with what he considers the indian family unit concept of a husband wife and children and that a cabinet minister Bupinder Yadav talked to the Hindu Hindustan Times, 
said that any debate over which union constitutes a marriage is in essence a legislative function and should not be a matter of judicial adjudication. So that's kind of the main argument of the government that this should be decided by the parliament. And of course, within the parliament, it is clear that with the ruling parties in power, the same-sex marriage would not be approved. The issue of marriage, they talk about Yadav as another minister who's a labor environmental minister, so this is not particularly within its purview, says that the issue of marriage concerns society and society's opinion on this issue cannot be excluded. And the voice of society is best reflected in parliament. So they're saying, in essence, that all of India or the people should be the ones deciding this, and thus they should be decided by the people who the Indian people elected in parliament itself. It's pretty well known what where this proposal would go in the Indian parliament. Mm-hmm. Definitely seems like they have their work cut out for them as far as getting these yeah. cases through. So outside of the government and the government officials and their influence on this, how do demographics within India, whether it's religious, rural versus urban, things like that, how does that impact the views on the LGBTQ plus community? Yeah, I think that's also goes back to the point, Trisha, when I said Narendra Modi's position is that same-sex marriages can't be compared to the union because it's a sacred unit of wife, husband, children, and family. And earlier this week, the federal government told the, the court that it would seek the views of the states on this matter, since marriage was also a state subject. Uh, and because of this is that another common refrain, besides the legislature argument, is that those opposed to same-sex marriages that it's limited to urban spaces, where society is obscenely more debauched mm-hmm. in an essence. That's another reason why Narendra Modi is saying the states need to be involved in this process. And they also talk about where a society is more debauched or in general richer and that only the rich have the privilege to identify as non-binary and explore alternative sexualities. And the court had to clarify that just because more people are coming out in urban spaces, it does not imply that rural areas are bare fit of it, as in gay people do not just exist in cities, to put it bluntly. Mm-hmm. And as this a point that the court was furnished with the example of trans woman Zainab Patel, who started her life in the Charles of Lore Perel in Mumbai. And Vogue magazine did a feature on her as this case was coming up in things. So uh, that kind of disproves that notion of the government, so to speak. But that is another argument that the government and religious authorities have presented. Thank you for that. It's definitely an interesting, all the different viewpoints based on where everyone's situated in India. So I want to turn back to you, Kasha, and ask more about gay marriage globally and some statistics on the legalization of same-sex marriage throughout the globe outside of just Southeast Asia. Yeah, so to put it in perspective, there are currently 34 countries in the whole world where same-sex marriage is legal. Most of these are in the Americas, uh, Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. And there's a few different reasons for this. In 2018, the European Court of Justice, which is the High Court of the EU, ruled that all EU nations must recognize same-sex marriages both for EU citizens and non-EU citizens, regardless of whether or not it was legal in the country. And this was primarily for immigration purposes. This shifted a lot of nations that had already not previously legalized it, especially in Western Europe, to legalize it. But some nations, like in Poland, where they still don't have a legal right to marry, but it's still technically recognized for immigration purposes. And then in the Americas, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, which presides over the Organization of American States, issued an opinion to Costa Rica that signatories of the American Convention on Human Rights are obliged to make same-sex marriage legal. And then this shifted a lot of nations in Central and South America to legalize it. 
So I know you mentioned the Americas and we've talked about Southeast Asia. How do other regions of the world differ in their opinions on the LGBTQ community? Yeah, so in the Middle East and North African region, same-sex relations are predominantly illegal and even punishable by death in nations such as Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Yemen. In the region, Israel stands out from other nations as it recognizes same-sex marriages performed in other nations. So basically, if you get married in another nation, come to Israel, it's recognized. But the bill that would have legalized same-sex marriages within the nation did not pass, so there's still a discrepancy there. In Sub-Saharan Africa, South Africa is the only nation that has legalized same-sex marriage, as in many countries in the region, same-sex relations are punishable by imprisonment or death. A polling by the Afro Afrobarometer between 2016 and 2018 found that 78% of African um, Africans across three three fourths of the countries were intolerant to ho- homosexuality, and then support for same sex marriage in the Caribbean nations is low. It's believed to be around seventeen percent in Jamaica, and twenty three percent in Dominican Republic, and sa- similar in other Caribbean nations. Mm-hmm. So it definitely seems like there's a minority as far as same sex legalization. In the world. And so we've been highlighting India, of course, but are there any other countries to be aware of outside of India that we should be watching for developments in this area? Yeah, so at the start of the year, the Human Rights Council made a list of five nations to watch regarding marriage equality in 2023, four of those of which are Asian nations. They highlighted India, Japan, Thailand, and the Philippines. And then the fifth nation on that list was the Czech Republic. So those are four or those are five nations many experts believe we should watch for this year. Yeah. Just to add on to that, uh, Trisha, Kasha made a lot of good points, but a favorable decision for the petitioners would make India the 35th country worldwide, the second place in Asia to allow marriage equality after Taiwan's parliament passed a bill. I think it was in 2019. But as Kasha said, many other Asian nations, the Philippines, Japan, are considering one as well. Absolutely. So turning back to India uh, for a little bit, Drew, we've mentioned the general opinion of the public in India towards the LGBTQ community and how that's been shifting recently, what would you say would be some reasons for that shift in opinion? I think in general, the Supreme Court's cases, the history of both defining transgender as a third gender in 2014, the criminalized same-sex marriage in 2018, and to a certain extent, this has allowed for changes in attitudes as mentioned earlier. Of course, refer back to that Pew Research Center article found that 37% of Indian people said homosexuality should be accepted by society in 2019, which is a large jump from 15% in 2014. That's uh, almost doubled. And I imagine that number has only grown since then as it's been another four years. So Indian attitudes are grown much more tolerant. And that while conversations around LGBTQ rights have accelerated, countries still have some distance to go. But the attitudes have definitely changed on the ground. And it's actually interesting to me that if the petitioners are granted a favorable ruling and same-sex marriage is legalized with India, will, I guess, use positive views of uh, homosexuality improve in India just because that has been the current case of trend? Or will there be some backlash, particularly amongst those supporters of the ruling government in power? Plaintiffs have tried to bring the issue of marriage equality before the country's top court since 2020. So this has been an ongoing process, and the Supreme Court basically combined several different cases together for back to the Chief Justice saying this is a matter of seminal importance, so we're just going to have big hearing on that five-judge panel. It's going to be televised for the public interest. Just basically, this is going to be a definitive opinion on the issue itself. 
And of course, this was all made through like city courts and state courts and the Supreme Court doing that now. So I think that the general progress has been positive and that it'll continue to be so, but it remains to be seen on if there'll be any sort of backlash if the court uh, does decide to legalize same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. And you kind of touched on what I was going to ask next regarding marriage equality in the past and how they're lumping the cases together now to address them in one big spectacle, really attention-grabbing for the public. So as we're reaching the end of our time here, I wanted to get your final thoughts on some of the things we've been talking about. So first off, how would the legalization of same-sex marriage in India affect the rest of the region in progressing towards equality, if you want to take this, Pasha, as our international analyst? Yeah, as we both mentioned earlier, India becoming the most populous nation in the world is going to make this a lot more impactful than with some other nations. And I think both just with nationals of these surrounding nations in general and also people looking at things like economics and stuff, it is going to push a lot of, I think, protests surrounding nations to kind of get the same rights and the same things going forth. So I think that this is a really good step for the region. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Anything to add on that, Drew? Uh, nothing. No, nothing. She kind of covered everything. So. And finally, pretty simply, what do you all think the outcomes of the hearing are going to be? I think I kind of touched on this already. I do think that the Chief Justice has been proven to be uh, favorable to this before, and the Supreme Court of India has issued favorable rulings, have been steadily appealing anti-LGBTQ legislation or laws that date back to the colonial over a period of time, especially within the last decade. There's been a lot of progress. I am hopeful. As in, I am really hoping that the Supreme Court uh, makes a positive decision and rules in favor of the petitioners, because I think um, this general trend of providing more rights for LGBT couples and things that they are seeking, that has been gifted to heterosexual couples. So I am hopeful that the Supreme Court will rule in their favor, but I also know that it's not just a matter of the court. It's also there is the public backlash that will deal with it, the opposition of much of the ruling government and religious authorities. And it's not just Hindus, it's also there's ruling authorities of like uh, six uh, Muslims and Christian leaders have joined together to oppose legislation. So it's not just this will be an evolving issue, whether the Supreme Court rules in favor of the petitioners or not, unfortunately. So we can only hope that there's more progress made beyond this case. Mm-hmm. Anything to add there, Kasha? Um, no, I just agree with the Drew and say that I'm hopeful, but it is a complicated matter. Absolutely. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion. Kasha, Drew, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Trish. Joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, CJ LaFond. Hey, CJ. Hey, Trish. So what headlines do you have for us this week? First, we have the Sudanese Civil War ceasefire faltering. We also have a drone attack on a Crimea fuel depot. Thirdly, we have the U.S. confiscating an Iran oil tanker. And finally, we have the World Chess Championship coming to a close. A lot of important stories to cover. Let's start with the events in Sudan. Yeah, so the fragile ceasefire in the current domestic conflict in Sudan is likely to break soon, with airstrikes hitting in the capital city of Khartoum. The uneasy ceasefire between the two rival generals in the Sudanese civil conflict was brokered by lengthy discussions led by groups such as the U.S., U.K., and U.N. The conflict, which started on April 15th, was caused by an internal strife between the regular Sudanese army and the Rapid Support Forces, a largely paramilitary group. The country was previously led by the military, but when they tried to shift to civilian rule, a fight broke out between these two conflicting forces. A development to continue to to watch. You mentioned drones in Crimea? Yes, a drone strike hit and destroyed 10 tanks of oil products in the Crimean city of Sevastopol. 
These tanks carried over 40,000 tons of oil products, which were mainly used for Russia's Black Sea fleet. While Ukraine has not claimed the responsibility for the attack, they did release a public statement for it, claiming that the attack was, quote, God's punishment for the previous Russian strikes against a city in Ukraine last Friday. This is not the first attack on Sevastopol, with it previously having come under repeated air raids. Definitely an interesting occurrence within the conflict and the, the encounter with Iran. Yes, yeah, so the U.S. in a sanctions enforcement operation recently confiscated Iranian oil held on a tanker at sea. In retaliation, Iran then seized a separate oil tanker. These oil sanctions were put in place due to the Iran's buildup of nuclear capabilities, which Washington, D.C. has alleged is being used to produce nuclear weapons. Iran does not recognize these sanctions, however, and claims that their nuclear buildup, while real, is purely being used for civilian energy purposes. A situation to keep following. And our final story? World Chess Championship match between Jan Nepomanchi of Russia and Ding Liren of China has ended with Ding taking home the title of World Chess Champion. Having drawn 7-7 in their 14 games of a 14-game series, they went from classical, which is multi-hour chess, to rapid chess, which is 30 minutes at max. Ding and Yan then tied their first three games of the next four-game series before Ding won the final game in a shocking victory. Neither competitor has held this title before, with the previous world champion being the famed Magnus Carlsen, who in a shock move retired from the championship circuit last year. Thank you very much for coming on, CJ. Thank you, Trish. That is all the time we have left for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Bobby Kyle, associate producers Juliana Mori and Kasha Kostrava, technical producer Ashley Skladani, and your host, Trisha Ballion. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.